Welcome to The Crescent Method, a podcast focused on organic, sustainable cannabis in an era of turmoil and misinformation. I'm your host, Scott, and together with my wife, Sarah, we are Crescent Soil Services. But when you're dealing with organics and cycles and natural things, like you can't just go and like go, hey, you're going to do this now. It's like you got to give it the, the elements that it needs and hope that it works out as efficiently and quickly as possible. And you can't really force it. And that's tough in this environment for most humans to conceptualize. Yeah, because why does it have to be one through 350 like Joe Rogan? I call whatever the fuck I want. The following episode is part of a two-part series where I gathered a few friends I really respect from varied backgrounds, mic the rooms, and allowed a roundtable discussion to go down. Because we are new, and this was an adventurous audio undertaking, there are some slight audio inconsistencies throughout the episode that will get smoothed out over the coming episodes. So we appreciate your patience as this podcast series matures. Without further ado, here's our next episode. Today we've got our good friend Hefe, and he is a cannabis breeder, a multi-decade veteran of the cannabis industry, and just an all-around solid human being. Also, little punk rock? Uh, brother was more punk rock. More dead. Yeah, yeah, I would say. All right. Leaning more punk rock in my older years. So, what I, what I want to avoid is being cliche. Is like, so, give me your first, you know. So now I'm like, how do I segue around that question with, what's a better way to ask? Start from the, from the Mason Dixon line. Keep it simple and be like, yeah. what got, what got, what got you started in the Wii game, or right. you know what I mean? Just whatever. I would think. Okay. One thing I noticed too is like in other breeder talks, like a lot of the breeders would spend like a whole bunch of time talking about the lines that they breed. And like that's cool, I'm down to like go into that a little bit or whatever, but like, you know, I've worked with such a variety of different shit that like I, I can't even sit here and tell you like, oh, well that's kind of my line and blah, blah, blah. Right. It's not, that's not a, what it's about at all for me. I'm, I'm definitely like come at it from a whole like if I get my hands on it and I like it and I want to play with it and I see something else cool great you know what I mean but uh you know I'm not trying to you know to promote myself as a breeder really I feel like when that day comes it'll happen you know what I mean but I don't really have like a seed company you know what I mean I feel like there's a lot of people that work and put a lot of work into their own lines and their own genetics and I can't really say that after taking five years off and working on an ice cream shop you know what I mean Mm -hmm. So I just I feel like I gotta kind of distance myself a little bit just out of respect for the people that have just been hardcore breeding for a while there, you know? This is why we hang out with Hefe. That's what I was trying to put into words that I can't eloquent and that's why we bring you here because what's not helpful is to come in and slap stickers and labels on things during the middle of the hype sauce movement. And so if we're trying to keep it real and we're trying to keep it original, you know, we need that type of accountability. And so it's like even basic things like just getting into the intro, you know, the accountability that you bring to that even basic word set is really, really important. And so in your journey of interacting with cannabis, there came a point where you wanted to produce your own seeds and start to do different breeding projects. Would you say that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I think for a lot of us, it happens because maybe you've, 
you've grown from clone next to seed, you've experienced some of the problems that are in existence when you get a clone from another garden. Um, back when I was doing it, a lot of those problems were probably in existence and we didn't even know about them. Mm -hmm. As a good friend of mine said at one point, he was like, you know, we probably have broad mice for 10 years and not known it. Sure. So eventually, I, and, and then you also, you'll lose a strain somewhere along the lines. And when you lose a strain, the way to try to get it back is by breeding. You'll learn, and if you're really passionate about it, you'll do your best to get back to that point or get something really similar if it's something you really loved, and maybe you can just get something that's similar and work a line to get back to that point. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that was also a part of it. And I also, I think when I got into it too, I also saw that a lot of the old school stuff that I really loved was either variated to like cross to something else and still sort of in existence, but not in the greatest shape, or it wasn't in existence in its pure form anymore. So another aspect of it was like trying to bring back some of the things that I saw early on that uh, I could see we're, we're getting phased out by what's become kind of the hype and the name game of cannabis. What were those main starting points for you then? Were you, you know, ditching glass, smoking some Northern Lights, or you know, what was that impression <laughs> for you? Uh, you know, Northern Virginia is an interesting place. It's uh, a lot of really smart kids and a lot of parents that aren't around all the time and a lot of kids with a little bit of money and, and down to have a good time. So um, I inevitably fell into cannabis or weed as we called it in high school. Uh, you know, smoked with friends a couple times and was also getting into the, the Grateful Dead at the same time. And so, uh, you know, if we would, we would get an eighth, you know, for a while there. That was about the amount of, of good herb that I could get. I could get, you know, I could get like an ounce of Mexican weed or, or more or whatever, but like to get the good herb, I could get an eighth, you know what I mean? And then eventually I could get a half ounce, so that meant like, I'd either give three of my friends an eighth and still be friends with them, or I would keep the whole half ounce. You know, that's what I mean. Virginia is an interesting place. You kept the half ounce, did you? I West us, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying not to. No, you're definitely uh, a shared guy. You're definitely a shared guy. But the thing was, like, what you would do is you'd, you know, we would save our best nug, and we would, um, we would actually, the, the Grateful Dead hour was on uh, Tuesday nights at like 2 o'clock in the morning for whatever reason on the radio station. And so eventually we figured that out and we'd like all sneak out and go to our one friend's house and save like our best nug from our couple different sacks for like weeks at a time and all hang out and listen to the Grateful Dead hour and probably eat some acid and smoke our best nuggets together. <laughs> and, I don't know, really good nuggets are maybe better on acid when you're young, so maybe I was got more into it that way or something but did you did you tour around with the dead to watch the music or did you do the circuit did you um say, did you yeah say it was sandwiches it was definitely about the music i was a taper geek you know what i mean so i was like trading bootlegs and ordering cassette tapes off of the back of magazines and getting them hundred at a time and going and hanging out with friends and spending hours and hours like this but like taping each other's different copies of different shows and whatnot, so that, that was a big deal. 
and through that, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of dead time, so, you know, if you had some good herb, you'd spend a lot of time talking about it, it seemed like, and, you know, we would just, we'd, we'd learn from one another, and, uh, you know, uh, and then eventually a strain or two came about that had a name, and then when that, when that happened, things started to change, and it started to be like, okay, this isn't just like a sack of kind, but it was like, all right, this one was different than the last one. Why was that different? And then the investigation starts, you know? And then it's been, there was a wrap. I was, yeah, from then on, I was always trying to figure it all out. You know, purple skunk, four-way. Uh, trying to think of some early, really good ones. Uh, I got a... One time I was at a dead show in Philadelphia in the fall. I think it was 94. And uh, I went up there with this really pretty girl. And uh, I went and got us tickets, and the tickets turned out to be fake. And I was super embarrassed. She drove, you know what I mean? It was, I didn't have more money for more tickets, you know what I mean? So I had like a hundred bucks or, you know, whatever. And I went, I got, I, I found this dude, and he had the sack, and he was like, yeah, it's not a full quarter. And I was like, let me see it. And he was like, it's a chronic, I'm serious. Are you serious? And I was like, yeah, I'm serious. Because it's Philadelphia, you know, it's sketchy on a lot. It's Commonwealth State, like Virginia, Virginia. And I'm a young punk, I'm like seven. 18 at the time, like, couldn't shave, you know, and, uh, so he pulls it out, and that was the skunk, mm. there's never been skunk before or after like that in my life, that was the skunk, and, uh, and that was like a moment, you know, I just had like one of the shittiest things in my life happen, but I just got this, one of the sacks of the best weed I ever got, and I was like, all right, so, you know, it got me through that really shitty night, and, that's happened a couple more times in my journey, so. Is it important to the reader how it turned out with the girl? <laughs> it doesn't matter, the skunk. Nah, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I was curious. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I was going to ask. I think I got two stoned. I think I probably got two stoned, honestly. Did, yeah. Was she overly disappointed about the tickets that it was a trash of a night? Like, did you get a... Horrible night with a girl and the best weed ever, or was she at least chill? No, she was pretty chill, yeah. from what I remember. That's cool. Chill enough, yeah. We were, we were main friends afterwards for sure. Nice. So, so you cross path with the skunk, which really did some dramatic altering of many people's lives. Apparently, you're not, you know. There's a long list of people that, you know, became outcasts of their their entire world on their on their course for the uh, something called skunk. Yeah, there's a lot of people I really respect in the game who still say the same thing too. They're still searching for it. You know, there's some people that, you know, broken a few things out from seed that are like, oh yeah, this is, and it's like, the people that know, know, and they're just like, yeah, it's not even close, but it's, you know, it's nice, you know, it's different. But I always hoped like, you know, somewhere in like deep in the woods of Southern Humboldt or Mendo when I lived there for years that I would come across it from some old timer. And, you know, I just, it didn't happen. It wasn't, like, my end-all be-all, because I've come across other, like, really stinky strains, and I've learned that those can be a problem, so I don't necessarily covet, like, to always have the most stinky strain in the room anymore. Yeah. I live in Oakland. Sure. <laughs> you can edit that, though. So what if, what if, what's been a sound replacement for you, then, for, you know, if, if overly skunky, overly odiferous... Terpene rich, blow the spot strains are not attractive. What is it that holds your attention that 
I mean, they are, but they, I don't feel like they taste as good, personally. Mm -hmm. Like, it's always been about the flavor for me. I always had, like, a inkling for sativas. I got really lucky early on with a Hawaiian sativa that we crossed with a Jack. I would almost say by accident, looking back, but we kind of knew what we were doing. And uh, we got a really good female out of that that somehow we were able to keep around for several years. And uh, that got me going on the sativa game and just learning that like those are often have more lingering mouth flavor than these hybrid indicas. Um, you know, I think that the hybrid indicas are great to get you, you know, high and all that and, you know, set you down and can use pain and, you know, taste really hashy and whatnot, but how many of them really leave a flavor in your mouth that you taste five minutes later? Right. And that was a lot of herb early on in the 90s. Like, that was, there was a lot of flavors rolling around back then that I don't want to say herb was better then or... Mm -hmm. I mean, I've probably said that 10 times in my life, so whatever. I'm a hypocrite, but... <laughs> like, I was, I was telling Scott, like, my favorite, uh, like, interesting, and had an experience with Blue Dream, and it's always been, like, a really just good, good straight Blue Dream. Because that's a legit medical strain. Lots of people have really benefited from real Santa Cruz Blue Dream. That is a legit medicinal strain. Yeah. But, like, for me, it's, it's tied in, again, with the flavor, yeah. with the flower, with right. everything, we, you know, yeah. Yeah. And it really is beneficial for your body, you know what I mean? Like the combination yeah. is, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, knowing what it is, Blue Dream, obviously there's an epic Blue Dream cut out there. And there's several people that talk about it frequently. And there's, you know, I live with someone that hits on it all day long. But it brings out that blueberry. That blueberry was definitely very influential in the mid-90s. Like I've heard it was from Seattle. Can't really verify that. I know it was West Coast that was bringing it out, but there was herb that literally tasted like blueberries. Like my last sack of herb that I walked off that door with was like a six gram quarter of blueberry that I got on a campground in Deer Creek. And like, I'll never forget that pot either. If I could breed something like that, I would be working on it for sure. I mean, I've, you know, I have friends that know DJ Short. It's, it's not happening. You know what I mean? Somebody out there has it, hit me up, sweet but not, not happening as far as I'm concerned. And there's some, and there's some other stuff coming out now that's like getting close, getting close to that. You know, the Skittles, um, there's some other flavors that are getting there, but you know, we got, we got some work to do on the fruit flavors, I believe as breeders for sure. There's a, there's a couple that are really popular that like, I just don't get why they're really popular. I don't think they're that great. Power of social media marketing. You know, Banana Kush for me, I was not really that popular. Um, but it also could be just like an offensive terpene to what like I my brain likes yeah. because it, it always seemed to kind of give me a little bit of a headache um, and I've, I've grown it and grown it and smoked it from reputable growers that did a good job it wasn't like weird stuff was in it but um, lemon tree I don't get it <laughs> forbidden fruit it's really pretty like, if your girl doesn't smoke that much weed and you're trying to, like, keep it on the low, like, that's probably a good move, but, like, other than that, like, I'm not... There, there is a strong argument for attractive, low-strength cannabis for the new consumers in this recreational market, so, like, I kind of get that, and I kind of understand why that needs to be created, like, I don't know that we need to hit, you know, like, that family member that's been a borderline, you know, goes into the store and gets a little... GMO or some heavy ass shit. 
you know, we don't want that experience. Or maybe we do. I don't know if I care. No, I mean, I, I agree. Like, you, we got to get, you know, it's got to be herb light. It's right. got to be herb light. Whether people like it or not, right. you know, if you, we all know. If you smoke herb every day, you know, that's not going to pass for you. But if you smoke, even if you're an everyday smoker, you take a month off and smoke, it's going to be an intense experience. You're probably going to want to think about the environment that you're going to be in beforehand, you know? So. Yeah, I feel like marijuana is way stronger now than when I first started smoking it, you know, and it's too much. Thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> his head, his head's not his head. You know, I've had I this conversation it's... so many times, though. Marijuana, it's I feel you. Like it's, I, it's if I take like a week fun. off and I Why smoke, I'm like that? I didn't want to do that. To do, you, do you know what it actually is? From my perspective, is because it's. You, you can actually legally grow it without getting the door kicked in so much that you can actually grow them to completion at this point. So instead of pulling them three, four weeks early or whatever people used to do to get it out, now you can, I don't know. So I think you're coming to cross paths with more properly matured flowers it's because a, of the way that's changing. Yeah, it's a, a full-on thing. Like yeah. 25 years ago, 30 years ago, I... I yeah, Grandpa, thank you uh, for throwing yeah. that out. But like when you were talking about <laughs> that first experience with the with the skunk, like you only really get that one time. Like mm -hmm. you never have that first experience of smelling like for the first time. Like when I first came across that kind of weed, because it's a totally different thing mm -hmm. from when it was like the brown shitty weed, and then someone's like, "Hey, check this out." I was like, "What the?" fuck is this like you don't get that what the fuck is this yeah experience again and so that it's like surfing you get you, you right. get that first wave that you get and you're like holy shit you'll never have that one again doesn't matter the better waves it doesn't matter it's not that first one where you i don't know i think that's part of it for sure <laughs> but i also think like you know, when I'm driving down the road and I actually do smell a skunk, I'm like, damn, I wish I could smell some weed like that one day. Yeah. The, the only time. And so that's a, like, that's a part of it. And, and having really, really smoked a very little bit of herb that was actually like that, I'm like, damn, you know, like, uh, I'm surprised that it hasn't resurfaced considering all the other things that have. Sure. <laughs> So, I, think, I think there's an effort, yeah. I'll just, if I could just interject too, because like you brought up as far as like uh, like dosing, and and as like I'm gonna I segue into like using it as a patient. I'm, I'm a civil veteran. I don't take any pharmaceuticals. I just use cannabis. Yeah. I know a bunch of veterans that are like that. Yeah. Um, and or have been able to wean off some medications because of cannabis use. Yeah. Um, as well as then obviously breaking the CBD stuff and all that. But looking at it as a medicine and as a dosing. Um, yeah, if you don't have your medicine for a while, there's going to be a, a harsh side effect. Right. Absolutely. But then again, bringing into the breeding thing, like that's a beautiful thing with that because that's like when we can really understand when we understand the differences of how these plants handle us because they'll have different effects. Well, yeah, and we're we're also finding like you know there's some people that like the more I delve into the cannabis community, I'm finding like, especially amongst breeders, like a lot of these people got into this because they actually have real health issues. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And um, there's a, I think it's like Green Fire. There's a young lady that I heard speak at a breeder conference that my buddy Bam spoke at that was really cool. 
and she was talking about breeding a lot of, um, you know, the, the higher end genetics that, you know, some of us consider more hype strains into the CBD yeah. because that's like allowing people that are in that space of like, oh, it's got to be the gelato, but you know, if the gelato's, you know, a seven to two CBD, I'm still getting my flavor. I'm still thinking I'm smoking gelato, but it's like actually making it so I can digest food or I can, right. you know, right. stretch or whatever it is with our particular Med, issue. Medtree's been doing that for a while. He's on a whole nother level. Totally. There's a lot of people out there doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I strive to be able to do more work on. I feel kind of guilty actually with my, uh, holistic nutrition background and like growing of other foods, not just cannabis background that I don't participate more in that realm and I think like moving forward it's definitely something that you know I want to address for sure like I, I was able to use CBD and a variety of things uh, uh, medicinal mushroom not psychedelic but, but medicinal mushroom powder like turkey tail and chaga and things like that with CBD for my dog who is very sick and and I think it had tremendous results and prolonged her not only uh, length of life, but very much quality of life till the, to the very end. So I, I highly recommend uh, you know, uh, such practices. What are, what are some of the strains that you carry or have maybe made yourself that have been really beneficial from a medicinal standpoint, like more than just a high or flavor or what, what do you? Um, I mean, I think that the, the four-way crosses have had the most variety of benefit for the most people. Um, you know, there's been several different breedings from it from the early 2000s that, you know, I've participated in and other uh, people in our crew have that have, are still getting reviews today, 10 years later, which it didn't go out to that many people. So it's mm -hmm. like that I find really interesting, mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's something to be said for like, the hybrid vigor of a strain that has four different original compound strains, as I would call them, you know, like the original family of strains that people. So, so what is the four way? Is that some like land race type combination or whatever the technical term the, is? Um, no, it was a it was a breeding that I believe was done in Holland. Um, I'm not great on the whole Sensi Star catalog, so if I say something that they dispute, I apologize. It's due to my memory. Sure. But, um, you have to put those disclaimers nowadays, man. People yeah, it's wild. Yeah. But I, I personally believe from all the herb I've seen over the years, and I don't really give a fuck what anybody says, uh, it's <laughs> Skunk, NL, Haze, and Early Girl. Which That's one? my personal belief. NL, Skunk, Haze, and Early Girl. 
Now, what two things were bred with what two things, that's up for discussion, or Sensi would clarify, but they bullshit about enough other stuff that, you know, <laughs> I'm, I just, I, I'm pretty sure it didn't have Sensi Star across into it yet. Sure. It was done before that sure. whole element. So your argument that it's been kept around or so impactful is because of the hybrid vigor of that combination of diverse powerhouses, or what are we saying here? Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to argue anything. My opinion doesn't matter. You know, mm. my opinion is just my opinion, but I, I would say, you know, what my opinion is, and that, you know, like, four-way, uh, you know, bred to Sour, bred to HP-13, bred to the original Urkel, um, you know, recently bred to the NL-1, even, by Coastal, um, was epic in its medicinal qualities because it touches on a lot of different notes and I think that that's another thing that we're learning with CBD. I mean there's so many cannabinoids that we don't take note of yet in science. You know we're always referring back to science and that's great but like science is constantly evolving especially when it comes to like counting the amount of cannabinoids or counting the amount of minerals that are in the earth that are actually available for plants or, or whatever it is. So. Um, you know, in, in that regard, I think the amount of hybrid vigor from a strain that has multiple things going on will touch a lot of notes and oftentimes provide a lot of medicine. Um, and that's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Because of the, of, um, well, I was a little bit stoned, but I was trying to tie back to um, what you were saying is why it was still around. It wasn't given to very many people. And so that somehow was correlated to the four-way. And I guess I didn't fully understand oh, no. that statement. Okay, yeah. So I was trying to bring it back to this combination of genetics has led to this thing that sustains, or, or what is it that's persisting so much? Um, no, it's just, for me, it's like something that I could play with and breed to that would always put out something similar but slightly different offspring and always pretty chronic that touched on a lot of different notes. So mm, nice. that's what kept me kind of wanting to breed with it. And especially when we brought the, you know, the HP into it or, you know, a very, very similar strain um, that to HP 13, depending on who you ask. But, uh, like that, that kind of like Burmese note that comes from that, that was brought out through the sour and the four way was like really exciting to me. And once I started smoking herb like that, it, it got hard. Like, like I, I grew cookies for money for four or five years and like, it's boring to me. I don't really want to smoke it much anymore, even though I, lo I love it in certain ways. It's just kind of boring. Sure. Was there a defined point where, you know, you speak about some of these other compounding benefits or maybe medicine, medicinal benefits, where was the turning point when you saw there was more than just like a stinky bag or something that got you twisted? Like, was there a, or a point where you kind of saw that there was more of a depth to this shit or? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I'm trying to think about when that was. I mean, I think it was kind of like when I moved to California and like it was like a real fight for me at the point I was at in my life to, to make it and I'd been so dead set on making it in California like I've been talking about it since I was like 15, 16 so by the time I was like 19, 20 and finally made the move 
you know, I'd gotten in a little bit of trouble in Virginia, I was on probation, I had to live a certain kind of lifestyle, and therefore I couldn't just come out here and go, like, you know, knock on someone's door at a farm and go, hey, can I come be a grunt worker? Can I grow you weed know? with you? Yeah. yeah. Like, no one ever wants that knock. Yeah, you know, I, but that's, you know, that that's worked out, it seems, for a lot of people in the last 10 years. And that's when true. I came to California, that was, it wasn't going down like that. That's true. That's yeah. my only point. And, uh, but, but I had to have a job, I had to do my thing, and so, um, you know, I, I, I got a spot down in Santa Cruz with my girlfriend at the time and our dogs, and uh, I had two jobs and um, was never really a big drinker. And I just remember like getting home and having like, I just had like some epic herb at the time that had like a really little bit of it. I had this perfect little bubbler that was like a one hitter that we used to call the doctor. And uh, it wasn't like the greatest, nicest piece, but it just hit really perfectly for a one hitter. Mm -hmm. And I had this like specific uh, stem put in it that was just a really good one hitter piece. So you could really taste the herb really well. I kept it pretty clean. And um, I just remember sitting there and being like, this is worth working for. Like being out here to me, like this moment, this five minutes of just getting to sit here and hit this, like this was worth like going and doing all this other shit that I have to deal with to like live this existence, which like was very like struggling existence at the time, you know, <laughs> pretty much on food stamps. But yeah, that was, I think that was when I was like, okay, this is my passion, this is what I'm willing to work for. And, you know, I always wanted to move to Cali and, and grow, but just at the time for my situation, I had to like wait a bit. I had to, it's probably good, you know. Nice. It's important to have at least one thing in life that is remarkably painful and a struggle to make sure you're serious about that shit. <laughs> you know, I would definitely say cannabis is <laughs> that shit show. I mean, most really successful people you'll find in life that you admire have had some crazy struggle to get there. Yeah. I do find. Like the people that, there's some people that are really successful that have kind of got it handed to them and they're a little bit harder to admire, I feel like, but the people that are like actually doing good shit and are really successful oftentimes, like you'll find like they've had some struggles to get to where they're at that's given some realization. When I was in my 20s, I was really gung-ho, you know, I was trying to be super successful, so I would go listen to speakers and investment topics and just anything that would try to up my education so I could be successful and, you know, do whatever that is. And a lot of the people that I went and heard speak would have a common story where there was a point where they made a fatal error and ended sleeping in their car and then they made a million dollars you know and it's like I've heard enough of those stories and been through enough of my life now that I think I think what's actually happens is you uh, you know if you get so committed to one thing that the last thing that you have is the option to keep doing it and live in your car you're stuck with two things the thing that you're more passionate about over everything else, even of a whole bullet points of human survival items. <laughs> and maybe the thing that's either gonna allow you to get there or the thing that's keeping you from getting there. And you only have those two things to look at because everything else is gone, you know? And from that point, you can have some pretty dramatic conversions, but what was the point where you started tinkering with making your own seed? Or where, where at this point, like, where did you even get plants from growing? Fuck. I've heard other guys from your same kind of time period that speak about the first plants that they started growing and you had to either come into contact with some seeds or, you know, there really wasn't a lot of clones going around. What was like the first stuff you started dabbling with for, for growing and how, how did that come about? It's a great question. I'm just 
thinking about this one time. I popped these seeds when I was really young, and I'm wondering what the fuck those were. They <laughs> <laughs> all got taken. So sure. I thought I could, like, grow, grow some weed in Santa Cruz, like, right on these bike trails. I didn't realize there was, like, thousands of mountain bikers that went through there weekly. Right. Thought it wasn't to know, but oh well. <laughs> um, so the first experience that's a great question but, uh, yeah so I was given some seeds like before I moved out here by a friend of mine from Northern Virginia that Brad uh, he had taken uh, the four way down to North Carolina and bred it to the great white shark and uh, he gave me some seeds of that and so that genetic is what I used for a while to 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 make like into the sour into the HB 13 um, I back read it a couple times living in Sonoma with my girl I did like an F2 and an F3 and they were they were good like the F2s were okay I probably wasn't that great a grower at the time. I mean, I definitely wasn't, but I maybe I just didn't get lucky being, you know, because sometimes in your first few grows you get you get the lucky ones and you get the unlucky ones. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so I didn't love the first run, but then um, I moved to to Sonoma and I got the Urkel, and uh, across the four way shark, I got a really good four way shark, male, and across it to the Urkel and. Uh, that purple way put off some really cool offspring, really short, nice bushes, but gave like the Urkel much, much better flavor and uh, much more, you know, psychedelic, less hashy high. Um, and, uh, and then uh, a little bit after that, we crossed that also to the sour and we got an incredible male, the sour way. And, uh, and you know, um, uh, I was living with a friend uh, at the time, Mr. Bob Hemphill, and uh, you know he definitely had done more work with seeds at the time than I had, no doubt. Um, and I was never like a book guy, but I definitely did know how to like, you know, pollinate a male at that point. I remember like we kept it in our shower for a while in one of the bathrooms and my trailer, and just did did our best to keep it alive. But that male was like. You know, I've grown out to full size, probably two, three hundred males, you know, and a bunch like smaller. But I feel like when you grow them out full size, you can really tell what you got, what you're working with. And once they get to a certain size, like really beyond three feet with most strands, then you can kind of like really see how the branching and the structure and what's really going on with it. And um, and then the terpenes of the stem really start to come out to fruition. And that's... I think the key to breeding, personally, um, that a lot of people don't talk about, but uh, but yeah, that sour way was was uh, was what got me going, and uh, shortly after that, I was given a strain called the banana, and uh, yeah, I rocked the sour for a while. I had the I was like one of the first people to get the the West Coast sour that's known. There was a kid that got a hermaphrodite sour seed from back east, and he came out here with it. And he knew a friend of mine uh, at the time, and. Um, you know, when, when my friend got cuts, I was invited over to get a few cuts. I think I bought five cuttings for $7 each. Three of them made it. <laughs> I was super offended that I had to pay $7 for a cutting. I definitely asked for my $14 back, and I'm totally really not that kind of dude. That's a good wholesale price right now. Yeah, it's totally. But back then, it was like, dude, 
what? That was like a, that was like a hundred dollars now. But what's Literally, interesting for cutting in cutting world that was a hundred dollars a cutting back then. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, yeah. how many cuttings were around? Maybe that's appropriate supply demand curve. Totally, it was fine. It was just funny. I'm just no, I'm with you, but I'm just like like what you know? What's the context that what you didn't shoot down to Wonderland and pick up a tray? You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't back then. No. Yeah, yeah, it was it was limited. You know, so in retrospect, <laughs> I was lucky to get anything. You know what I mean? And uh, but you know, when you're young, you think you're the shit and you should get everything you want. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm still trying to grow out of that one, but uh, I think the first seeds I tried to grew, uh, I'd gotten some really swaggy south of the border weed, and like I threw them under the patio thinking that's what would do it, you know, like that showed just such a remarkable level of naivety <laughs> as far as what, what a plant needed and to what that plant was going to become under my porch, you know what I mean? Like, but I was like, we're doing it. Did one... Uh... <laughs> It's a weed, right? It's a weed, right? One summer we were up on, uh, first summer I did, uh, really did outdoor on a bigger level. I was up with this old uh, deadhead that was uh, a buddy of mine at the time, and, and uh, he invited me up there to work with him, and I took a bunch of plants up there, and he had a bunch of plants, and, and we were, you know, there was helicopters flying back then. This was the summer of, uh, of 2001 when 9-11 happened, and I remember because there was crop dusting, and then there was no crop dusting because all the planes had to stop flying. But uh, the helicopters were heavy that year for sure. And uh, we were making plans to like make these paths through these madrones. We had this like hillside, like huge hillside, but like not, it was fairly flat, but it was all madrone, like six foot tall bushes. And we were like, oh, we're going to make this path through this madrone and like grow all these plants in there. <laughs> like that's, you know, what you had to do back then. Like now I look back, I'm like, dude, those things wouldn't have done shit. I would have put so much fucking effort into that. You know what I mean? Like, and thank God we didn't, but we had like other things that we did and under certain bushes and stuff. Like, whole big four foot plants got eaten by termites and shit. <laughs> <laughs> with su- with such effort to have that outcome too, you know, it's like you had to bury the water line, like real shit. It was yeah. definitely interesting. That was really my first summer doing outdoor, you know, and and uh, on that scale. And, it was an eye opener. I have a lot of respect for people that were doing that for a while before me. <laughs> so, so, so what? What cultivation styles evolved from you know bushwhacking with the homies, <laughs> avoiding <laughs> avoiding termites and coyotes? Like what? What are you we guys were even actually, doing at we this were, point? We were big guana guys at the time. Right. Like I, uh, I, I got. I don't. I'm trying to think of how I just got stuck on guano, but. Yeah, we were just like really into bat and zebra guano and kelp, and, and that was real basic. And I used to, um, funny enough, uh, I used to boil water on my stove and put it in a five gallon bucket with guano, and, uh, or not a five gallon bucket, like a five gallon water container actually, when it was like simmered down for the most part, but probably way too hot. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the guano, and I'd make a guano tea with that and shake it all up, fill it up with water. Put some kelp in there maybe and you know kept, kept pretty basic soil and that method worked for me for a while i mean early on in my career a lot of people were surprised with like how good stuff tasted you know but i definitely don't do that shit anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah people yeah there's a lot of guanos people don't understand the infrastructure that's needed to build to go scoop bat shit out of a cave in the in the jungle but uh, what I had a one guy came to one of our earlier workshops, and he pulled me aside and asked if he could hire me for his services. 
and we got up to his farm and we just started going through the cycle of progress and how he got to here and and he says yeah man i you know i've been making this soil for 10 years and i called to get my order and they said we're sold out there's no more supply of this specific guano product or whatever it is and he was like that's when it clicked for me he's like i'm an organic farmer that like got to the end of a supply of something <laughs> and he's like i don't know what the path is but like that's what clicked for me you know yeah like, that's a good that's a really good metaphorical example <laughs> I feel like I've had that happen a few times too, where I've just gone in and started asking, like, oh, do you guys have California humus anymore? And they're like, well, there's not really a California humus anymore. Yeah. And you're like, interesting. Yeah. Most yeah. of those things are one, you know, is one deposit. It's, it's crazy. And that's, you know, that's part of the excitement of, you know, some of the natural farming techniques like KNF and, you know, people are making compost and people are starting to get on board with making their own nutrients, um, which I think is actually pretty exciting. You're definitely a natural farmer, even though we originally met at one of our workshops and as a friend, I felt compelled to talk you out of using KNF and <laughs> as a good punk rock, you uh, said, fuck you, Scott, I'll do what I want. And it's actually worked really well, so I eat my shoe on that one. Uh, you actually found a great way to make it all work in harmony, it seems, to produce some pretty remarkable, super respectable herb. Mm, it's definitely a lot of failures along the way, so, you know, you're definitely, a lot of what you talk about is really accurate, and I wouldn't, definitely wouldn't have gotten there without some of your help, that's, you know, I'm not just saying that because I'm on your radio show either. That's real shit. You know, I was definitely doing KNF. I was definitely producing quality herb that most people liked. I was definitely having problems with powdery mildew. I was definitely doing a lot of things from seed. I was definitely using too much sugar. I definitely see where that was causing issues with bug pressure and other, you know, probably causing the mildew. Um, and yeah, it's like. I remember when I came to your talk at at Eric's mm -hmm. spot and I came home and like I'm a person that you know always know what I'm doing in my garden I'm never like questioning anything you know what I mean and I mean I might change something but I'm never like oh what do I do you're very you intentional know? doing it with purpose nah. that's what I'm trying to say yeah and yeah. um and I came home and I, I I needed to water and I needed to do stuff and it took me um like literally 24 hours to make a decision as to like what I was going to do damn I just gotten like my whole like just and and it wasn't even like what you said as much as like the numbers on the chart yeah because I was like well that's you know, the microscope is obviously an, a tool which I've known for a long time to quantify evidence and information. And, and seeing that for me really helped and really put things in perspective. And I was like, all right, and I kind of not just using what you said, I, always, I also went back to like my nutrition background and, and really thought about some stuff and was like, okay, well, what's 
like from a whole cycle perspective, what's the problem here? And for me, like somebody made a point to me a long time ago about microbes and they were like, yo, you sit around, if you're like a microbe, like think about this. If you just sit around and eat sugar, what do you want to do? Like you want to sit on the couch and watch TV, most people. And so think about a microbe. And I was like, and that was said to me about compost teas and molasses, like mm -hmm. a, a, a early on, mm -hmm. you know, probably more than a decade ago. And, uh, and that came up when I was sitting there and I was like, wow, okay. So now I have to figure out, like I'm still down with the sugar. I still see where it simulates microbes. Mm -hmm. I always was down to go get crazy sugar. Like when I lived the in Willis, I would go and get lacuma syrup and yukon syrup right. and stuff. And you know, my, whoever's working with me at the time would be like, oh, you're a fucking weirdo. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, whatever, it was my thing. <laughs> You know, but when I was most successful in Willis, I was also doing like these crazy um, stank teas with oak grass. And uh, I feel like, you know, outdoor you can get away with more stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, outdoor and greenhouse, I feel like inside you might have a little bit more bug pressure created. But uh, yeah, like the going back to like easing back on the sugar and just kind of like trying to find a balance and like just thinking about that was really helpful in conceptualizing a cycle that is currently working. Do I know that it's gonna work in six months? No, I have to observe. Yeah, I, I think that was one of the more impactful statements I've heard somebody fire back after a meeting at a workshop. And you know, so we met at the workshop, had dinner, and then you know, when we reconnected, you kind of came back with that like, you know, I have an education in, in human nutrition and I've just realized that I'm feeding my plants 50% white sugar you know what I mean it was like you know those things like it's so easy to overlook overlook the obvious things you know in, in all aspects it's really easy to be so deep into the forest and not really notice that and I you know I think that's why there's so many people so we get contrasting reflections so that we can make adjustments but you know you're definitely putting a significant effort into those ferments and there's no doubt that it is working and there's no doubt that the weed does taste or the herb does taste very clean and you know it's it's coming out phenomenal and you know some of these ferments you said take you what a couple years to make or something or there's varying information i mean mm -hmm. that's like one of the issues on knf for sure that like you and I have delved into and I've definitely noticed it's like depending on who you talk to one person could say you know you could ferment some some fish for three weeks and and then go for it other people would say three months other people might say two years like my buddy Reg was talking about abalone he got and he was like yeah I did it for about two years pre-Fukushima I was like damn that's the shit let me get some <sighs> so sorry I don't mean to no, get you're too good. political but that's yeah, like you good. know that's the kind of stuff that the real people think about yeah. they really they don't just think about like okay what's the what's on the title they think about like where it comes from what happens in that part of the world like what's going on in that ocean you know what i mean like i used to for 15 years i used to think about where my cup comes from is it nuclear water or non-nuclear water it's all nuclear water at this point i think yeah I mean, but yeah <laughs> no that was a couple years ago i was talking to kelly from dragonfly and that really screwed me up when she brought up the concept that she knew somebody that had a large supply of pre-Fukushima, you know, C90 or one of the saltwater products. And I just was like, man, I'm already overwhelmed with too many things. I can't even process that concept. Like, holy shit. Like, well, there, you know, and, and that's where it, it becomes like, are we harping on the negative or are we focusing on the positive and attempting to find solutions? Right. And, you know, uh, there's, 
there's met there's methods tried and true methods that have been used of composting that eradicate nuclear peptides mm -hmm. i believe wheat germ is used from what i've heard i could be slightly off i'm definitely not like right up on the research but definitely this yeah. this has been done and, sure. and it's known and so and it's it's there's probably many practices of doing it that are outside of biodynamics there's no reason there needs to be a title on it but like we can find solutions and and that's the beauty of what happens through doing things the right way and and not just like going to the store and buying more plastic bottles right you know if we th if we think about our plants not to sound cliche but if we think about our plants like we think about what we intake and you're the kind of person that like rolls around with a clean canteen do you really want to be only feeding your plants stuff that's sat in a bottle for a really long time and probably has some chemical residue that's like peeling what's inside the bottle way off right. on, into it? So I don't to think about it, yeah. They're starting to run into a lot of detects now, like people running into heavy metal detects. So they, they, they're a permitted farm, they produce a sellable product, and it gets hung up at the at the quantification stage and the heavy metals are too high so they now can't sell that product on the market and it's you know the benefit is this plant is a great bioaccumulator but the problem is, problem is we're given a lot of things to bioaccumulate you know it's also a great bioaccumulator of heavy metals right. so you know like are we growing it as a cover crop or are we growing it as a finished crop you know that's mm -hmm. you know if, I mean, things that pull up heavy metals, that's what we want to grow as cover crops, right? And then replant, kind of. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I just speak jive. I'm not up on all the tech. But uh, what, what, are, um, what are some of the, the ferments that you do like to use? What is it you're, you're, you actually are incorporating in the program? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I take uh, great pride in being one of the uh, people that influenced you to actually make lacto. That sounds very cool. I did. That's true. Um, and I really like lacto. Uh, I think it's like a probiotic for your plants. And um, I think if you're using like compost extracts and there's any potential for like unfinished things in your system, like things that haven't been fully digested by your worms, like your corn, uh, uh, some fruit, whatever, things get in, you know what I mean? Unless you're like really sifting every gram that goes into your soil mix from your compost, like I don't have time to do that, so things get in every now and then. So for me, knowing that that could happen, I like lacto because I feel like it stimulates the worms and everything else to kind of like go and take care of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I also have been incorporating uh, more worm activity to digest uh, uh, large clumps of sugar that could be left from KNF residue. And I'm also top dressing with hay in a pre-inoculated top dress twice during my flower cycle um, that's about, let me say, about 25% hay and the rest earthworm castings and compost and a few minerals and things like that that I pre-inoculate and let sit and then I top dress with that. I, I feel like those the hay stimulates the worms, which digests the sugar and helps me have less like residual side effects from from problems with, with KNF. And then I've also kind of toned back KNF to like I'm using 
FFE, which I love because I love controlling the fruit sugars that I'm going to use, and I don't give a fuck what anybody says, that's going to be a hard one for me to stop using. Um, <laughs> you got to do you, boo uh, That uh, I'm using probably about a fifth as much as I was using before. Nice. So I'm noticing a lot less bug pressure. What FFE for the lady. fermented fruit extract? Yeah. So like you know I'm a weirdo, so like I spent my summer like going around to different farmers markets in the Bay Area and collecting uh, melons and different fruits in my spare time while I was caring for my dog, and then I did a bunch of fermenting of that stuff for the farm. So the farm that I work for was nice enough to um, just want an elaboration for. Yeah, yeah. Except for the lab, 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 no, you're good. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, you're good. No, it's just they were they were cool enough to like pay me to like do fermenting time like down in the Bay Area while I was like dealing with my dog, which is pretty awesome. So what does FFE stand for? Fermented fruit extract or something? Uh, yeah, fermented fruit extract. Right. So okay. you know you do your uh, your 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 one to one brown sugar and uh, diced up fruit, uh, preferably not berries. F why I, uh, because of the phosphoric acid. Hmm. Um, so I, if you're going to do berries in it, I would not use it past like week two or week three. That was like some good advice that, um, the world's last hope, um, instilled on us in a class that I took initially. And I definitely appreciate that advice. So that's been very applicable to your situation. Yeah, I just think it made a lot of sense, you know what I mean? Like the berries can kind of ferment earlier, and I think like that was something with the over sugar I was kind of noticing from the smell of my soil and what was going on. I was like, man, the, man, the top of the soil is kind of fermenting a little bit from mm -hmm. all the sugar. Like, what, what, what is going on? And that's why I really started adding the worms, because I really wanted to keep the biological activity going on while I was like adding the stuff. And, you know, it takes time to kind of figure out your routine. Like it's... I think that's a good strategy, though, because you know, the worms can help maybe clean up, you know, any excess and the, and the issue in a living soil system is any excess food source because nature doesn't waste anything. And so if there's excess sugar sitting on the surface, that is going to be problematic. And so I like that. It's a good novel solution to finding something that makes all the pieces fit together. Well, yeah. And, and also like it, it, uh, ties back into a topic that you and I initially got into, which was root aphids. And that was another thing that I dealt with, I should admit, in my KNF process. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, root aphids can be a real fucking nightmare, but if you get your game tight, they are a joke. It's, they're, they're a necessary part of the ecosystem. You almost want them in your compost digesting stuff, and then you want them to go away. And that's why... <laughs> Um, I became uh, concerned more with undigested things winding up in my living soil or soil that I was currently using to try to grow cannabis. So um, I'd say probably, you know, two to, you know, whatever, like a, a good third of my initial followers on IG were probably due to like this thing that I did about root aphids and tobacco ferment. And I just, you know, I got a, I got a buddy who recommended just go get a pack of American Spirits, ferment it for a week and, and use it. And I did it. And uh, it worked well. It worked really well, actually. My parents <laughs> were, uh, they weren't as bad as like pictures that I've seen of Rudy sure. where people are like really going south. But I was, I was on the fence with having, having to, you know, kill stuff. Yeah. 
and um, I, I used this tea and it had a reaction that was as good as any earthworm casting based tea that I've ever used, like on the plants, like in terms of its immediacy. So what was that tea? So you got... It was, it was literally just silica and the, the, the tobacco ferment, just a reaction that happened immediately. And then I just came right back with compost extract and lacto hmm. and started building back the uh, microbes immediately. And one of the really amazing things that I saw happen through that was um, the base stock I find often when you have issues starts to go beige. I'm sure you guys have noticed that. And like when that happens and you're growing a big plant, the plant pretty much stops its production. Like if you had a pound plant and starts to do that, you're not going to probably pull more than a pound and a half. It's really hard to get it to go away from that Thing. And that's why plants getting root-bound mm -hmm. are, are such a problem because that starts to happen. That's a true sign of being root-bound. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I had this plant that had gone through all that root aphids and was root-bound. And I transplanted it and I did that formula. And then I came back like a week later with another tobacco ferment. And the one thing I noticed was that base stalk started to grow back green. Hmm. Down, not up. And when that happened, I was like, all right, like, I'm not great at observation in my garden, but I noticed that. And I was like, all right, this, there's some work in here. And um, so, yeah, so that really opened my eyes to um, the ability to rebuild the immune system of the plant. And that's something that, um, you know, I've listened to like Mr. Bob Hemphill and some other people talk about that I think, you know, there's different ways to do it. I think giving them sunlight and Things like that are, all, are really critical. So what was the catalyst or, or direction change that went from, you know, you said you, you took out the root aphids and they haven't come back, so that's beneficial. And you've had low to no mold pressure for a while. And like, what, what was the correlation or what, what's been the evolution of you know, a mild level of frustration to what you're experiencing now. Um, so, you know, obviously in living soil, it's about stimulating microbes, right? Because we're all, we're all after it. We're trying to figure out the ultimate meal for the microbes. And, you know, so when you start thinking like, oh, maybe there's a little too much sugar in my KNF program or whatever, then I had another friend of mine say to me, um, before I started using your calcium, I was using uh, like some liquid calcium that wasn't of the greatest quality. And I was also using the, pardon me, the eggshell calcium that you make in KNF. So you, you know, save all your eggshells and toast them and, you know, let them sit in apple cider vinegar. I'm not going to explain the whole method, but, um, it, uh, it's a form of calcium that's probably better used foliar, honestly, because of the cider vinegar maybe than used in the dirt is what it seemed to me after a bit, at least as my main calcium component. Um, so knowing that microbes are pretty much, and this is a concept that I was told, like in the early to mid 2000s by a guy that I met who claimed to work with Elaine 
a long time ago, um, and he was really into minerals. He was like a third generation farmer, and his grandfather, his name, funny enough, was also Scott. And I don't think he's in the industry anymore. He, he kind of fell off for a variety of reasons. But um, he said some interesting things to me a few times that, that struck chords. And one of them was, long story short, that every microbe is at least 70% calcium. So hearing that and understanding cation exchange um, and seeing that when I worked for the big company and I was running the big nursery and had all the issues with the bug pressure um, and my plants were like kind of going blonde, I realized that like magnesium was my issue. and It was kind of like the calcium to magnesium ratio. And that was right about the time that you started sending me some stuff. Hmm. And, um, and really the cow mag and the cow boron were kind of exactly like I just started adding just I went out and got like, you know, whatever basic magnesium, organic magnesium salt I could find because that's what I had access to. And I went out and uh, my other buddy was like, yeah, just add a teaspoon to every one of your like 30, 40 gallon reservoirs. Just a teaspoon. Just keep it so it's like constantly like a little bit there. Hmm. And so that to me was like way too fucking much because I just try to get the most off the least. <laughs> so I did about half of that maybe. Um, and I uh, started seeing good results, you know, and then... And then you came in with the calcium boron, and at that point in time, like ever since I left Salinas, it's been like this crazy battle with bugs because I had to bring yeah. Salinas to my house. Exactly. And so I have an attic with wood, I can't afford to paint, I have bugs. Mm. Um, and I know that, and so I focus more on seed growing because yeah, like that's, I can tell more with the problems, you know what I mean, about the plants. Well, I might, might as well utilize that to my advantage is the way I look at it. But um, the calcium in that process and having like ACs break down, not be able to afford them and, and variety of problems, whatever, yeah. you don't need to go into the laundry list. But the calcium that you gave me, had, gave me like the most immediate result. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, cool, all right, I got this like, base problem of my plants, like getting to this big point, not being that root bound and starting to go blonde, I got that figured out between like adding a little basic magnesium and the calcium boron and, and not being afraid to foliar feed. Yeah. And so that has helped me tone down my KNF a little bit, like it, out of necessity. And I can see it on the top of my dirt. I can see like there's not this layer of like almost like glaze that was going on. And I wasn't going crazy with the sugar, and that's what was really tripping me out. Because I really am focused on trying to get the most out of the yeast, not letting the residual at the bottom of the barrel wind up on the top of my plants. Yeah. You know, I'd go out and pour that out in my garden bed out back or whatever, and I still was having this glaze. And, you know, just like leaf color, I think, you know, your soil color and your soil texture are like really important aspects to observe in agriculture. Your soil smell. A lot, a lot of the KNF samples that come into us for looking, the soil smells atrocious when we open up the bag because it's so loaded with anaerobic, uh, you know, smells. And it's like that, like from my life, that's a stark contrast when those ones pop up because we smell soil all day long. So when a stinky one comes in through, like it's really profound. But what you were talking about earlier with the magnesium and the calcium issues is the thing that I don't think people realize with the KNF is that anaerobic decomposition produces a ton of nitrates and from my understanding nitrogen and magnesium are enemies of sorts and so when there's a excess of nitrogen 
and magnesium, they start to have these processes, um, and one of them gets lost as a gas, from what I understand. Jump in the comments if I'm way off base, but that's the way I understand it. And so by over-applying these nitrates, I think that starts to disrupt the magnesium. And then under anaerobic conditions, calcium is also lost, and some of the other nutrients become lost as gas. Um, calcium precipitates out, and I think waters out the bottom. And so the two biggest things that I've been trying to communicate to the KNF world for the last couple of years is that the process is inherent, or you know, in the process, by definition of biological conditions, you're losing calcium and some of your, your nutrients, you know, and and so every every person that calls me that sends in a soil sample, yeah, that's got so everybody that sends me a soil sample that's doing KNF that's having russet mites, it's like my first question is what's your calcium source, and they go, oh well, I got the, you know, and they work through three or four different acronyms, and they're like, well. Well, I got the eggshells, but I never did the thing, you know, the pan fry, the acid, or whatever it is you're supposed to do with it. Like, that is on the, like, making your own nutrients train. That's the stop that never gets to. And, and, and like you said, if, if, if that's true, that biological life is 70% back to, uh, calcium, I would tend to believe that. To not bother with the step that provides 70% of the base nutrients is probably going to lead to issues. And that's the most common thing across the board is... People have the jar of eggshells, but they never do the process to turn it into the soluble calcium or what have you. And so, and and so, like, did you get into it because it was the term that was cool on IG? Like, are we are we doing the whole like I grow plants in fabric pots and call it no-till? Right. Or like, are we like actually focused on what we're trying to achieve? Right. So like. You know, I was blessed in Willits that I had a big compost pile that I could play with. And through their compost pile, I was able to regenerate dirt. And I was able to build microbes. And I was able to see where, like, extracts and compost seeds were working for me. And I was able to, like, get minerals activated and digested and, and whatnot. But um, the calcium, like, the, the one thing that I learned through that experience and planting in a bed in the ground there was that like the first year the amount of fertilizer that I used compared to the last year I was there which was probably like five six years later the last year was about 20% as much fertilizer to yield like one and a half to two times as much in less space boom do you see those numbers so like five times as much fertilizer the first year to not yield as much let's say like 40 went to 70 and I used 20% as much fertilizer so if you guys don't get those numbers, you can hit me up. But like, <laughs> you decrease, uh, decrease the. Input. I wasn't like really nearly as knowledgeable as I am now. I just had this like nutrition background, and it made sense to try to like try to be efficient about stuff. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, basically through calcium and microbes, I started realizing like, wow, I don't really need to buy all these bottled nitrogens and all these bottled phosphorus and and then I, I still fought the guano thing I'm gonna admit it like I fought the guano thing for a while and I still like I work at a farm and numbers are important and I consider guano a little bit but I just don't like its lack of sustainability and I'm not using it currently that being said though like uh, if I used it I'd be using like 5% of what I used to use and I'd probably be getting more of the results because I have Calcium has activated the microbes. They're going around and they're doing the work for me. I'm mm -hmm. feeding the microbes. I'm not feeding the soil. Mm -hmm. 
and you know that's a hard concept for people to get over and what's been difficult for people is they have no context or relation to how much nutritional needs the microbes even have you know and so there's a tremendous overfeeding overwatering overdoing especially with the things like the sprouted seed teas and some of the other knf ferments people think because they're not you know gh3 part that they're not volatile or potent or every bit as destructive as some of those other things and and so you know we've tried to provide that measurement device back to people so that they can get some of those concepts but once you get down the natural farming corridor to where you're making your own nutrients a lot of those people are really adverse to some of the more brick and mortar solutions because they want to live out in the in the really natural world which is fantastic but you know the thing too is like that that Another thing, at least, that you really uh, helped me see was like cycles and timing of cycles. And like, do you really want to speed up your cycles like that fast? Like, yeah, if you got problems, you want to you want your plants to turn around as fast as possible. Like, that's obvious. Come on. But do you want to be constantly like feeding your plant like a heavyweight bodybuilder? You know, and that, a lot of times that's what people want. But when you're dealing with organics and cycles and natural things, like you can't just go and like go, hey, you're gonna do this now. It's like you gotta give it the the elements that it needs and hope that it works out as efficiently and quickly as possible. And you can't really force it. And that's tough in this environment for most humans to conceptualize. And that's probably why the most common thing that we see is people overjuicing a sprouted seed tea or one of the ferments at a critical growth point of like, you know, first couple of weeks of flower and completely toppling the system, ending in undesirable results. Like that's the most common pattern that I see is like with these sprouted seed teas and <clears throat> some of the other ferments, like people have no clue how potent they are and how overdose the application rates you've been given on some of these things. And you know, nobody's quantifying or, you know, not many people are looking at these numbers. We're definitely quantifying them, but there's definitely a threshold for detriment. You know, it's, it's the whole dosage makes it a poison or a medicine. Well, yeah, it's like, um, Josh was talking to me about, um, making, uh, a, a bitters ferment with, with bitter flowers, native flowers from our property, which I'm a, I'm a huge fan of. I highly recommend this technique. So, yeah, if you get like local native flowers and you you know harvest them and you soak them in a bucket for like a day or two and let them get like slightly anaerobic and then you bubble them for a day or two, probably more like three, mm -hmm. and you have like a really nice like bitters tea that's like a really good, I think kind of, um, you can even do it with a compost extract and the sugars in the compost extract I think kind of balance each other out personally. Mm -hmm. You You might, you know, think differently looking at it under a microscope, but I, I've liked the results. But the bitters tea, I feel like um, that's a that's a really good balance to all the sugar that we're dealing with with KNF, and we're all like gung ho on the sugar all the time, and it's like, but we're not thinking about the other stuff. And, and <clears throat> speaking from a nutritional standpoint, like think about a good healthy meal. Right. You know, think about what's on that plate. Think about what's in a healthy salad. You know what I mean? It's not all sugar. So the plants are the same way. It's just there's a couple elements that are a little different. It's not 
fats, carbohydrates, it's potassium, it's calcium, and uh, it's, uh, I, you know, the, the whole concept of like, oh, I, I feed my plants all the best shit, but I eat, you know, fucking McDonald's. It's like, yo. It's super common right now for a cannabis grower to eat fast food dollar meal and also feed their plant aloe vera. But that leads to... <laughs> But that they like, feed their aloe vera plant organically out of the bottle. There right. seems to be a transition where they then start to drink the coconut water and the aloe vera, and I think that's really where the meal transformation starts to happen. But is there anything else there that going on right now that does excite you? I know there's a lot of hype shit, and I know there's a lot of watering of genetics with self selfies, but you know, is there something that you're seeing that actually does excite you or does really? I mean, I just had an amazing experience in the cannabis community. Um, a significant amount of our interactions been through IG or at conferences, but uh, a lot of what I know about the current cannabis community, if you will, is through Instagram. And uh, I had to put on a seed auction for um, for some emergency funds for my roommate's dog who wound up passing away. Yeah. Um, but uh, the outpouring of people, and I'm not only going to say people, the outpouring of people who didn't know who the fuck I was mm -hmm. or my roommate and just stepped up and showed absolute, genuine gener generosity um, was mind-boggling. It, it really restored my faith a little bit. And, uh, like, I, I, you know, after my dog died a few months back, which made this situation obviously harder, you know, I, I put IG down and just kind of went back to like focusing on my gardening. And I was just like, this is my year where I'm just gonna like lock myself in a room and play my instrument, so to yeah. speak, as far as like my, my gardening goes. And that's kind of been my entire focus. And um, I just had gone back on IG like a, a week before and I told my, my business partner, like oh, I'll go back on there and, and you know, there's some benefits for the farm or whatever. And then this happened, and just to see that was like, this is, this is what's real. This is our potential that we have. This is why this herb is a medicine. It's because it's so introspective. It checks us when we need it the most. It helps us like be compassionate when we need to be compassionate and help others. And that's why like we, we cannot let it go completely corporate. Like we all know, we all grew a two lighter that was better than any 20 lighter. We all did it, admit it, whatever. So like the craft farmer is, they have to survive. It's not even a question. And we're just sitting back and, and giving a lot of props to a lot of people that didn't do the work. And um, you know, I, I really, um, I'm, I'm happy to see what's going on right now. I'm happy to see what's going on with the sessions in Oakland and people coming out and supporting real community and trading and learning from one another and I think that's like a really positive stride because we're we're entering into a prohibitive era in cannabis whether we like it or not it's that's what legalization is kind of bringing about for the reality of real cannabis yeah mic dropped does to build the immune system cell wall. I like really see a difference when I bring new species into my garden that even if they are totally healthy, um, they usually struggle for a minute 
like totally healthy, no bugs, no PM, no, no problems, but they usually struggle for a minute until they like get used to that program and then they build up their cell wall. But anything that I've had for a while is like just really much sturdier and I've done several different inside outside comparisons. Is that something you're making yourself? Because I know that's that's one of the more exotic creations, isn't it? The OHN? Yeah, I was really intimidated by that one. Um, but yeah, just, you know, if you find a, a local, like, uh, spice store, herb store, you can get most of what you need. Um, I think it's important, uh, if you can get licorice root, that's a really good one to use. Um, you know, people have really basic formulas. They're usually from, like, five to seven ingredients. Usually it's, like, garlic, ginger, licorice. Um, I've seen turmeric in there. Um, Recently, I made one uh, in the summer with black cardamom that I found to be probably the most offensive spice and menthol-y near <laughs> eucalyptus in the Oakland Spice Shop, and I'm a big fan of that one. Nice. But I also have geared my OHNs to where uh, the more rooty stuff, like turmeric and um, licorice and that kind of stuff, I use earlier on, and then if I have to use anything later, like we had some crazy bug issues in Humboldt, um, I was using a much more plant-based one. So then I was using like one where I made with like lemon verbena and things that I felt like were going to more bring beneficial insects rather than like leave like residual heavy oils. Interesting. Uh, that sounds like a logical strategy. Nice. I'm, I'm a late foyer feeder, but uh, some yeah. people are super against it and I, I get it, um, but I think like people need to start being a little bit reasonable about what's going on with their plants. Yeah, there's definitely a point where like the, the powdery mildew has gotten such a grip on people that they don't want to make any action. It's like so many people look at me like I just suggested they jump off a bridge when I tell them to foliar feed their plants or spray any kind of moisture into the grow space. And it's like, I feel like one of the reasons we're kindred spirits is because we get in there and do it, you know, and it's, and it, and it I think we both, like, even though I've only worked in, like, uh, you know, three commercial spaces, I think we both probably dealt with every species of bug, amazingly, in California. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe there's other ones outside of California that I haven't witnessed, but, uh, yeah, I worked for a company in the East Bay, and uh, they were buying cuttings from all over California due to having to fill... Um, uh, five properties with 22,000 square feet, or I think maybe 30,000 square feet. It was, it was wild seeing like 150,000 square foot between five properties. And they didn't grow a bud worth smoking. Are you in awe of how many people scrambled for thousands and thousands and thousands of plant to grow them like utter dog shit? I mean, yeah, because <laughs> they, they only did a season and a half. They could have done three seasons. Like, uh, my buddy knew me the whole time. He could have called me on the phone. I could have given him the advice he needed. Like I probably would have done it pretty low cost, if not for free. If he was smart, but um, yeah, like I I learned a lot running their nursery for sure. Cause I I came in and we had like cannabis leaf aphids. We had root aphids. We had PM. We had every type of mite. We had. I mean, it was so. Ridiculous. And it's all trying to chase this like mythical twenty-two thousand plants to do this thing, and it's like all the plants you brought in were pretty uh, susceptible because they're overstressed, and then you brought them here, and, and none of this stuff is linking up, and then you end up 
And all those yeah. all those plants had like significantly compromised immune systems. It was really obvious because during that time I went to the Emerald Cup and um, I was hanging out near uh, Bodie's booth and uh, our buddy Brett, who's friends with them, came over um, and uh, was like, does anybody need these extra plants? And he wound up giving me like three moms and I had a truck there. So I was like, all right, cool. I'll take these for, fuck yeah. I'll take them out to the farm, you know? And I hesitated to take them out to the company. I should have just kept them at my house, but I wound up taking them out there because I had like confidence I could like bring this whole scenario back. And uh, I took them out there and you could just see from seeing those and how they were taken care of next to all the other species, which were probably 35 different strains in like four different rooms that were enormous and all these different, like, like you know, more than a thousand plants easily, all different sizes. And like all these plants immune systems were so compromised and it was so obvious and I had sprayed them like literally like three and four times a day for like three days in a row sleeping on the floor in a warehouse just to, like because I put my name on it you know what I mean I was like I'm gonna bring these plants back or they're just not gonna be able to so at least I learned that like probably can't bring plants like that back you really need to like call down to a certain point if it's that important to you just pick the best one or the best two and like get them down to a certain point and you know, hope for the best. I just had to do it with the ghost OG and I'm so thankful that I did it because one plant can cause so many problems in your garden once it gets to a point. Mm -hmm. And as a breeder, I get it. We're all about keeping our shit for as long as possible. And, and there's some people that do a 10 times better job than I do on it. But like, don't be afraid to call. Don't be afraid to move on. You know, mm -hmm. if it's a strain you absolutely have to keep, I get it. But like, that's the only reason to keep shit around that's like gets to that point of compromise in my opinion yeah and i you know i think you and mr bob have shared the same sentiment that it's not necessarily the keeper of the the pack of seeds you germinated it's it's the plant that maintains that vigor for you know two three four five ten years you know there's there's even some of these strains are natural degradation that happens regardless and so some of these ones maybe don't seem to have the genetic potential to be able to be rehabbed forever and ever and ever where some of these other strains seem to be able to persist through anything totally and is that the genetic or is that um you know is is that the amount of different genetics in said genetic for example like you know, is a pure NL have a chance at being a better cutting for 30 years than four-way because four-way's got four different genetics in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think that's one of the reasons that four-way's really struggled to come back to fruition, even though like multiple growers in our crew have done everything in their power to get it pretty much looking perfect. And it's still like, it just has lost a certain amount of potency over time. It really needs to be rebred, brought back. And that's a, you know, can tell you as well as anyone from experience before, well, it's a really hard thing to do. You might as well just be content with getting something similar and, you know, don't spend your life trying to chase the holy grail that might not be there, you know. I know I'm going to break some of my friend's hearts saying that, but <laughs> I'm dropping some real shit on you right now. <laughs> That's a tough decision, man, because once it's gone, you can't, you know, you can't get it back. I've had a couple friends lose some very important genetics that they've carried around for a while. It was quite emotional, you know, but then, you know, finally at the end, the one friend says, like, oh, I'm just tired of talking about it. It's time to move on, you know, and 
that's hard because you definitely want to keep bringing along the stuff that is beneficial to you, that you enjoy, that's enjoyable to grow. Totally, but like, I don't know. I, I like moving on to the next in a way, and I've kind of, maybe I've geared my mind towards that, but like, you know, you bring up Mr. Bob, for example, and a couple summers ago, he had rehabilitated some like very famous old strains, for instance, like, you know, UK cheese, um, sour, a few others, and done a perfect job in a perfect greenhouse, Bam's greenhouse, Trevor Flower in Santa Cruz, like, perfect time of year to harvest, like, I mean, you can't really imagine a better crop, you know? Yeah. And, um, and for me, like, you know, I smoked a little bit of the cheese, and I smoked a little bit of a couple of the other, like, older strains that I loved, and I was so looking forward to, but I have to admit, like, in my head, like, they weren't the same as they used to be. Not that they were worse, he had done a perfect job, they're the same strain they used to be, just my palate has moved on. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. And if for breeding, yeah, keep those things around, do your thing, you know, but don't be afraid to, like, go find the next thing, you know? Just be careful getting to, like, F7, F8, and just closing down your, your genetic pool, you know? The people like him and other people that are doing seed increases, that's super important work, and I think that, like, you know, they deserve a lot of credit for using their space and their power bills to do that kind of work. It's a fucking pain in the ass and, you know. Um. I would definitely say it's one of the more unsung heroes that people don't even, because people right now don't even understand why that's important. They're just saying purple punch and uh, cookies. They don't understand why it's important to maintain this genetic diversity. And so it's, totally. a, it's, it's a really weird crossroads where this is, remarkably important and remarkably serious i think on a on a human you know medicine standpoint like we're talking about preserving some of the last few medicines on the planet and yeah you know we're getting bottlenecked and f7 to hype and yeah you definitely got to be careful taking this is one point i want to make and this is really important to me to say in the cannabis world and um i'm just gonna say it you gotta be really careful bringing selfie shit into pure genetics. And please, breeders out there, be more considerate of what you're doing because you're gonna regret it down the road. I've done it. It's like, it's not that the herb gets worse, but in 20 years, if you're still breeding to that like, selfie chem or that selfie sour or that selfie cookies, like, you're going to regret it. You know, I promise you. So just, Consider that when you have your pure genetics. I was looking through my library the other day when I was doing the seed auction, and it was definitely one of the more important things that dawned on me when I was looking through my whole seed catalog, which is not as extensive as it should be, and it's not as extensive as it used to be. And uh, I look back and I'm like, there's definitely some regret there. So. But, you know, I, I like, I definitely, for example, I bred cookies into something thinking that that was like the move and I should have kept it pure. Mm -hmm. And I fucked up. Yeah. If that goes public, I don't care. I fucked <laughs> up. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. It happens. You've got so many redeeming qualities, though, and those type of learning experiences catalyze motion towards I'm trying to find something positive in it it's unfortunate <laughs> no it, it's it, it, it's a lesson like yeah. it's that's what's always positive is to learn and that's why I share it and it's like I see it on Instagram all the time I guarantee some of you guys are going to regret breeding the Mac into everything the Mac is like 
It's good. It's frosty as fuck. It's impressive looking. There's very, uh, there's just as strong, much terpier herb out there, and there's going to be a line down the road where you're going to be like, fuck, I wish I didn't cross the Mac into it. Right. And that's just an example. And I don't mean to like no, hate on that kid's work or yeah. anything like that. Like he's an amazing grower and he did, he grew some fucking amazing pot. But like, I just think, I just use that as an example because it's one of the most popular strains going around. Sure. Right the important is genetic diversity. And knowing like, if it's a selfie or not, knowing if it's, Actually, like what I mean by pure genetics, if it stayed male to female, like once you inbreed it, gotcha. once you selfie it, like you're gonna lose some of the diversity, you're gonna lose some of the strength. I've grown blue cookies and I've grown blue cookies from seed that came out the exact same way, but it was like just not the buzz weren't as big, it didn't have the vigor, and that's gonna happen down the line when you look at that. And it's you can get closer to the terpene profile when you self breed something, but you're not going to have the same vigor over time. And I feel like that's not considered by enough breeders. Right. Because I think, you know, originally, what it did, did selfing come out of necessity? Because there was only a couple plants to pull from. So you had to do a self to do a seed increase or... Or you, know, you just kept, like, most people don't keep the mail. And yeah. so, you know, that's one thing that, like, you know, Mr. Bob... Uh, influenced me on for sure was like keeping a male around cutting to cutting don't be afraid just to like yeah. you know it's not gonna like drop pollen if you just keep it in veg just keep that male genetic around and then when you want to do a pollination do it you know mm -hmm. and we kept that sour way around for probably like a strong year before we did anything with it yeah. unless we like you know did something accidentally with it you know but that thing was like six feet tall by that time we probably it's like in its second generation yeah. you know so that's like, but, but that's what happens is you just keep the cutting, the female, and then on down the line you're like, oh, well, I want to have seeds of this, but you didn't keep the male around. Or you didn't make seeds, you know, and do your seed increase, so then you're stuck with just a cutting, you know, and that's what most popular strains now that are going around, they're just, they're not in seed form, they're just a cutting. There's very few people that actually hold the males, and the couple growers that I've worked with that are holders of the males tend to get access to all the females because most people don't want to do that type of work. There's such a fear-based fear -based, uh, model around the whole thing. It's like, you can't even have a male in there because it might screw everything up, but really a good male should be able to not pollinate the veg space, right? I mean, I mean, if you got skills, you can do stuff 10 feet away. It's like... You just have to pay attention to all aspects, pay attention to airflow, pay attention to, you know, when a curtain comes up or you unzip a, a, a one of those tents or whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? I've definitely done some dangerous stuff that's worked out and I've definitely made some mistakes and, uh, you know, don't, like, you don't need the biggest space to be a breeder and definitely don't need to you know grow a thousand plants to be a breeder either you just some some of the best breeding that's happened in the last 10 years are from people that probably grew out less than 20 of those plants at a time you know what i'm saying and i and that was also something that i believe in in holland for a long time like before i was able to really do it, it was like 
you know, they, I felt like they were missing a lot of stuff. It seemed like everything came out the same, you know, and I was always like, why does the herb over here have so much more, like, what's now called terpene profile? Right. Back then, it was just like, this is, you know, loud or more rich or more dank, really, was the term I used in my generation. Yeah. Well, sir, I, uh, you know, it's hard to really go up from, from the strength of that last statement. And, um, you know, I, I genuinely appreciate you as a friend and a colleague and a human that comes so correct that when you enter the room, the other people by default have to come correct. And, um, you know, I always appreciate your input and your insight and the upbringing that brought you to be the person that you are. And I obviously hope that you can continue on as long as possible making medicine for people. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk on the microphone with us. Super kind, really kind words. Uh, it's been an honor, definitely. Uh, look forward to doing it again. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's super cool to be able to sit here and kick it and enjoy this view and shoot the shit. So give thanks, yes. all you guys, for sure. There was some audio that I'm not sure if we grabbed because of the snowstorm that was rattle-tat-tat-tatting on the roof, which is ironic as hell because we're sitting here talking about climate instability and climate change and nobody believes us and it's snowing on our Bay Area roof in February. And I don't know if that's normal or not, but I don't think it's fucking normal because it was blue and cloudy and sunny, it looks nice. It's a California <laughs> day and then it fucking hailed on us. Like, this shit isn't right, kids. Lock it up.